either the mom has a problem or the baby has a problem. And we only have about 1,200 of these trained physicians. And globally, many countries don't even have that training existing. Hmm. So in my state of Georgia, for example, for the whole state, we have only about 25 of these physicians. My next door neighbor in Alabama has less than 10. Their next door neighbor in Mississippi has about six. So if you're pregnant in a rural area and you start bleeding, you're in trouble because you're not going to have that specialist in your community. So when we saw eight years ago, the technology had advanced to the point that we could do teleradiology and see the baby and use these new peripheral tools to hear the mom's heartbeat. And we now could almost do a virtual exam we thought this is a game changer. This is the way to take those 10 or 20 doctors or however many they are and pipe them in to where the patient is. Welcome to this encore interview from Forbes Books at ForbesBooks.com and the Women Presidents Organization, WPO, at WomenPresidentsOrg.com. I'm here with Tanya Mack. She's the president of Women's Telehealth, Women'sTelehealth.com. She's also a member of the Women's Presidents Organization. And uh, Tanya, I'm so glad you're joining us because I know I'm not the only one who has lots of questions about telehealth in general. I also have lots of questions about women's telehealth because that is such a specific thing that I want to start first with just making sure people understand what telehealth is and why it is such a powerful force in our healthcare system. And then let's delve into the very specifics of your company, Women's Telehealth. And when I look at your background, for instance, when I looked at you on LinkedIn, I saw that you've been with Women's Telehealth for almost eight years. And I have to imagine that if that's the case, I mean, we're starting to hear about telehealth today, but eight years ago, I have to imagine you and your colleagues were almost inventing this field. Yes. Well, Greg, first, thanks all for having me in to talk about this today. I think we're all dealing with telehealth or hearing about it, at least. So to address your question about uh, eight years in telehealth and the timing of that, yes, I often joke about how we were on the bleeding edge, not even the cutting edge for (laughs) at least my specialty. So telehealth has been around for over 30 years. Mm. Um, And the number one user is actually the military, and Medicare has paid for some very limited form of telehealth for the past 10 or 20 years. But it was only in very rural communities of less than 5,000, and you had to be homebound. There were lots of rules around it. But in the past 10 years or so, telehealth has become to uh, many, many Americans and worldwide, actually, as just a method that we use to source healthcare. And let me tell you just a little bit about telehealth and what that means in telemedicine. So telehealth is defined by a lot of statutes and at the federal level to be an electronic method of communication, including audiovisual interactive communication to provide clinical care for patients. So that could be everything from traditional telehealth would be like stroke patients. You have a stroke in the Okefenokee Swamp in my area where there's no neurologist around and you can dial back to a big tertiary care center and, and know whether we should give that clot buster or not in time. because this, this would be a healthcare so, provider like maybe yeah. an, an, an EMT or something using telehealth to get guidance from a doctor. Correct. 
It would be an EMT like in an ambulance, or it could be a small critical care access hospital of 50 beds or less that have no access to a neurologist. Mm -hmm. So in telehealth for a long time, our core specialties have been stroke or neurology, dermatology, behavioral health and mental health, because there's not a lot of physical exam things. Those would be the three common areas where telehealth started because we could look at pictures. It's not procedure heavy where we have to touch the Mm. patient, right? Um, But over time, one thing that has happened is we now have smartphone plugins and peripherals and Bluetooth technology that have allowed us to almost do virtual healthcare exams with sensors and things like that. So the other specialties in the past five or six years are kind of coming on board like women's telehealth. Well, and I have to imagine, just to sort of talk about the general field of telehealth in general, I, I, I think maybe the name telehealth has actually outgrown itself because it's really not about the tele, right? It's really about the internet and connectivity and inter- yeah. inter- interactivity. And, you know, for instance, I know that Apple has rolled out a thing, I think it's called iHealth or must be eye health because everything from Apple has an eye in front of it, but I think, or mm-hmm. health kit, it's actually called where mm-hmm. they're empowering healthcare professionals to use the iPhone, the sensors and the cameras and all that to actually enable medical testing and finding subjects for tests and things like that. And you can see how the economy there, the, the ability to make healthcare more efficient is, is it's almost an endless wave of, benefit for all of us. Absolutely. It will give us faster, quicker access. And um, I talked to Blue Cross Blue Shield in the national telehealth meeting this year, something like 76% of visits are really for low acuity things in terms of the provider's definition of that. So respiratory infections, pink eye, the flu, Things that are urinary tract infections, those are all not very complicated things. They just need some diagnosing, some lab tests, some um, antibiotics, and you're usually on your way, right? So the, the overwhelming majority of visits could be provided by quick access and speaking directly and cameras on our iPhones mm-hmm. and things like that. I did want to address the three modes of transmission because you're right in the United States thinking the majority of tele isn't telephonic, it's internet or broad-based band um, based. So internet connectivity, we now have, I can put a stethoscope on me here in Atlanta, and you can be with a healthcare provider with the right tool, and I can hear your heartbeat and your lung sounds in real time from New York hmm. or wherever, or across the and, pond. And that's without, um, uh, that's without something like an Apple Watch, which has a sensor on the back. You're saying anyone with well, a smartphone could do this. Huh. Wow. Yes. Well, it's not anyone. In that case, it would be somebody would have to be in a clinical setting to have the right Bluetooth stethoscope. I see. But let me I do, see. Let me do give you an example, though. There is now uh, a little device you could put on your iPhone. It fits over your camera, and it's got a little ring, and you put it up to your eye, and it takes a, ca- a picture of your eye, including reach back to your retina, and then you do the other eye, and it will actually diagnose and give you your prescription. 
And mm. that could be viewed online by a physician, and then they would le- link you to glasses if you cho- chose it or contacts or whatever. Mm. Obviously, with an acceptable level of accuracy that it can yeah. match what an eye doctor could do, because yeah. eye doctors are humans Absolutely. and they can make mistakes. Well, you bring up a good point. So in telemedicine, we are held to be paid to have the same level of standard of care as we would as if we're in person. That is actually in many states called parity law, which basically is a concept in telehealth that says, if I'm going to do a virtual exam, I can listen to your heart remotely. I can take a picture with a light scope and a camera of your wound. I'm going to counsel you in an audio-visual call, and I'm liable for that visit and that diagnosis. It's the same as in person. Mm. So we're paid oftentimes the same as in person by the insurance carriers and by patients. So there's many, many broad applications, but it certainly is moving from how we originally thought of telehealth as a way to get scarce resources into rural areas. Now it is in our homes. It is 50% urban. It is high traffic cities. Just, you know, get your care from home. So, um, It's just really broadening our applications. The more we have tools, the more that they're smartphone and laptop or device enabled and not really, you know, tied directly to us having to go to brick and mortar care. Well, and I want to come back to the scarcity point in a minute. Uh, I want to make one other note as a consumer, and that is I'm a very healthy person and I don't go to the doctor very often. But one of the things that's so attractive to me about this is when I go to the doctor, I'm sure it's something that my doctor could handle without me driving to the office, sitting in the waiting room, mm-hmm. waiting, you know, there's and then I got to drive back. I mean, there's a lot of time for us as consumers, and I'm sure it's matched on the in, in within the medical office as well, mm-hmm. time that could be eliminated, frankly, the level of efficiency for everybody here is pretty dramatic if you could just make an appointment and have that that consultation by phone. I'm talking with Tanya Mack. She's a member of the Women Presidents Organization. She's the president herself of Women's Telehealth. It's womenstelehealth.com. Now I want to change gears here because I think as we talk about your company and what you do, I think scarcity is going to become even more important because if I understand correctly, what you are very specifically focused on at Women's Telehealth is something where there is literally a scarcity of doctors physically physically distributed across the country to help women at a really significant time of need. That's exactly right. So um, my background really, as far as women's health and this particular telemedicine company, Women's Telehealth, addresses infant mortality and maternal death. So just to kind of give you a flavor, when we started this company eight years ago, we had to decide if we were going deep or wide, but we knew high risk obstetrics. So in America, if you're an OBGYN and you want to further your education, you can do beyond residency, a fellowship of three years in either maternal fetal medicine, which is high risk OB, or GYN oncology or infertility. So we're talking about obstetricians that have done an extra level of education for three more years, and all they focus on is high-risk pregnancy. Either the mom has a problem or the baby has a problem, and it's all referred beyond their OB level. So just to give you a flavor of the scarcity in the United States, 
we only have about 1,200 of these trained physicians. And globally, many countries don't even have that training existing. Hmm. So in my state of Georgia, for example, for the whole state, we have only about 25 of these physicians. My next door neighbor in Alabama has less than 10. Their next door neighbor in Mississippi has about six. So if you're pregnant with twins in a rural area and you start bleeding, you're in trouble because you're not going to have that specialist in your community. So when we saw eight years ago, the technology had advanced to the point that we could do teleradiology and see the baby and use these new peripheral tools to hear the mom's heartbeat. And we now could almost do a virtual exam. We thought this is a game changer. This is the way to take those 10 or 20 doctors or however many they are and pipe them in to where the patient is. The other problem we have is that the farther out you go from healthcare, sometimes the less compliant or the less able patients are to go. So some of my patients say, look, I don't have gas money to go across the county. I can't take a day off. And if I have a diabetic pregnancy where I'm going to have to go in more than once a month and take two or three days off and have serial ultrasound scans, I just can't do it. And so just the scarcity of resources, you know, you begin when you, and there are some doctors like the Dakota areas often don't have one physician. So we're having to cross state lines to actually provide the specialty high-risk obstetrics care and advice both to the patient and to the local OBs to keep them safe longer with less problem pregnancies so we don't end up with a maternal death or some NICU baby. That's really what my company focuses on. I I have a question here uh, because I want to put – You've put a, a done a really great job of expressing the risk and who could need this, but I want to understand statistically how many of these high-risk pregnancies exist. And on top of that, I'm wondering if there are things happening in our culture today that are actually making more or less of those high-risk pregnancies occur. So, for instance, as you were talking, I was thinking, well, we have an obesity crisis in this country, so that's probably causing more or maybe causing more high-risk pregnancies. We have uh, families doing a lot of things that impact fertility. So I think I, I think it's correct that we have more twins and triplets and multiple births that could also increase high-risk pregnancies. Is the rate of high-risk increasing on top of everything else? I think it is. You bring up a couple good points. So let me just give you some statistics to first address the incidence, and then I'll tie it back to what's kind of relevant in our our world today. In a normal pregnant population of, say, 100 women, about 10% of those pregnant women will have some reason, at least once in the pregnancy, to see a high-risk specialist. It could be a test result comes back you know, incorrect. Or it could be that at the 18 to 20 week anatomy scan, when all the baby's structure is there, we find an abnormality and nothing will be done, but we can prepare for delivery. It could be lots of things. About a third, if you're in a high risk area, like a high Medicaid population, a rural area, limited access, it could be more to like 20 to 25%. So almost double or one in four or five pregnancies will have some reason to see one of these specialized doctors. 
of those women, about a third only come once for a consult, and then that's not the problem, or it's managed, or we know what the answer is, and they go right back to their obstetrician. About a third of those patients are diagnosed, and then their follow-up at some point in the pregnancy to make sure whatever treatment plan we had worked and were prepared as the baby grew through the pregnancy. And about a third of those women are what I call frequent flyers, which mom has diabetes anyway, and then got pregnant and we're going to manage her insulin through the whole pregnancy. Or it's a triplet gestation and we're going to see her the whole way through the pregnancy. So that speaks a little bit about to the incidence. But I'm so happy that you brought up the relevance for today. So there's there are things that are happening, kind of somewhat surprising things, that are driving up that number. The number one thing you mentioned is obesity. So it might surprise you to know that 40% of our patients that are referred to us are over uh, 31 body, 31% body mass index, which is considered morbidly obese. And with that comes high blood pressure, gestational diabetes, hypertension, all kinds of secondary things. So not only are we dealing with the blood flow and extra weight and volume, we're dealing with now a new new problem two or three throughout the pregnancy. So that is certainly a big issue that we have in America today. The second one is opioid addiction. Mm. So in some of my areas where you have rural populations or even urban populations, the numbers of patients that are referred for patients that are actively in treatment or not actively in treatment, but pregnant. How do we help those babies? How do we help those moms? How do we manage the pregnancy um, from that point on? And again, some of these patients are compliant with coming and some are not. Every chance we see them, that's one chance that we have to help make it a little better. The infertility is kind of uh, the thing that's happening with us is as women have chosen careers and have been in the workforce for a while, they're delaying their first pregnancy age to much later than prior generations. So the advanced maternal age cutoff is if you're 35 years of age at the time of your delivery, then you would be considered advanced maternal age. Well, I had a big practice here at Northside Hospital in Atlanta where the average age of our first-time mom was 37 years old, and we did about a 1,000 deliveries a year. So it definitely delaying our first pregnancies longer. The opioid crisis is even hitting our babies unborn, and mm-hmm. obesity are three perfect examples of how we're needing more of these specialists, but we're not graduating more per year. So we anticipate that this will continue And telehealth is just one way to get the resources where they're needed because a lot of times the patients won't or can't go. So one of my questions for you, I'm talking with Tanya Mack. She's the president of the company Women's Telehealth, womenstelehealth.com. You said that there's 1,200 of these specialists in the country. About that, give or take. Give or take. And, and, And I think Common sense would just tell us they're not going to be spread evenly across the country, too. I bet there's a lot more in Los Angeles than there are in North Dakota, for instance. Using telehealth, a company like Women's Telehealth, is 1,200 enough when you take advantage of the technology and the efficiencies that it makes available, or do we still need more of these doctors? 
We would still need more, but for example, it definitely helps us spread the distribution. So one of my physicians can follow about somewhere between six to 10 sites. Instead of just sitting in a brick and mortar store, my physicians will be in front of their screens with the baby images and the electronic medical record data and the data coming in on one screen and then a camera and talking to the patient on the other screen. So because she doesn't have to move or he doesn't have to move, they can see um, a few more patients and certainly they get economies of scale from their point too. They can cover reaches that they, they couldn't, where the patient would have to drive. So in my company, we cover the seven Southeast states and we can cover multiple hospitals with one doctor, but one doctor would not be able to drive around to those eight to 10 hospitals on their own to see the patients because their driving time would eliminate their patient time. So in that regard, the distribution is better. Does it fix the need? Not really. In uh, almost all levels of Medicare, we are beginning to use mid-level providers for follow-up care, and Mm. we do as well. So once the doctor makes the diagnosis, you're going to have to be on insulin. You're going to have to have a new blood pressure medicine. Um, we're going to watch how this baby grows, whatever it is. If there's no new problem and they kind of get to be in the monitoring phase, then they come in and they can also see a mid-level extender that has been trained by these perinatologists with the correct protocols to know how to monitor them. And that will help alleviate some and it will also help drive some of the costs down. Um, but all new patients typically are seen. So better distribution, not sure we've exactly fixed that problem, but mid-level providers and telehealth tools definitely help extend their own efficiency for sure. So you mentioned that you could kind of divide your patients into groups of a third, a third, a third. You know, one third mm-hmm. would have one visit, one third would need a follow-up, and one third you called a frequent flyer. Mm-hmm. What I know this is a very general question, but I think it's an important one to get for us to get a sense of. If those women don't get to see the specialist they need, what happens? Well, hopefully we we have no complications, not always the case. As an industrialized country, we are like 17th or 18th for maternal death in our country. Mm-hmm. Here in Georgia, we are number one for maternal deaths, unfortunately. Um, So we have problems with the moms and they don't make it through. That's number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, the most likely scenario is the mom would have some kind of preterm labor indicating some kind of problem because we didn't manage the problem well. And they would present in an emergency room that may or may not be prepared. And that baby may or may not be born alive or need support or need a neonatal intensive care that probably isn't in their community um, or just is in their community but now is parked there for a while at a very high expense. So our job is to keep the mom and the baby healthier longer. Every day of pregnancy health is good prior to delivery and to try to get them to about 36 weeks in their pregnancy where they'll be pretty safe to deliver. We had an excellent case study um, I want to tell you about because it demonstrates what you can do with this kind of technology and tools. Um, Because we were one of the worst statistic states, our 
commissioner of the health department in Georgia said, we have to do something. Let's look at our worst preterm labor area in Georgia, which was Albany, Georgia, and the 15 counties surrounding it, a very rural area for us. We ended up putting in telehealth plus a centering pregnancy program, and we ran through patients staying there, and then when they were identified by their uh, OB provider as high risk, we scheduled them for a, a maternal fetal telemedicine visit and kept them in the loop for their treatment care so they would not have to travel back and forth to Atlanta. So we started with a preterm labor rate in those 15 counties of 18.8%. The national average is about 11.5. So we were almost double, which also meant one out of four babies might end up in the NICU there after delivery. After 500 pregnancies with this new telemedicine tool provided locally, instead of them traveling back and forth to Atlanta, in 18 months, we were able to reduce that, that preterm labor rate to 8.8%. Mm. So shaved it in half, which kind of proves the concept. If we can get the care where it's easy and affordable right where the patient is, and we use the tools we now have available, we can really impact, you know, the, re the outcomes for these particular babies, which drives costs down for the payers. It makes it easier for the families. It's just a win-win. You know, you get faster access, you get less expense, you get a better outcome. That's what we all want with healthcare. Well, I almost hate to put these two things in the same sentence, but it's both incredibly economically viable, but also a matter in many cases of life and death. It can be in my particular specialty, or for example, like the stroke, uh, you have one hour to decide whether to give that clot buster. Are we going to harm you or help you by giving that? And the answer lies in the image interpretation. So getting that image in that first hour, whether that is in the back of an ambulance to a tertiary care center with a neurologist or not, those are good examples of where this kind of technology tool that we're using for high subspecialty doctors can really save lives also, for sure. I am guessing, Tanya Mack, president of Women's Telehealth, womenstelehealth.com, that, that this is more than a job, but a mission for you? It is. I think it's my legacy, to tell you the <laughs> truth. I do. I feel like, you know, we talked about us being on the bleeding edge. It is very hard to be a trailblazer. Here's a good example. When we started our company just eight years ago, there were only eight states out of 50 in the United States that covered telemedicine for what we do. That is a really big uphill battle to fight with Blue Cross Blue Shields, the Aetnas, the, the policymakers um, at the state levels and the federal levels to actually get these tools paid for. Um, you don't have doctors that went three years extra or, or extra trained working for nothing. None of us do. Um, but until there's reimbursement, which is still one of the biggest barriers in telehealth, mm. until there's appropriate reimbursement, people just struggle. Once there is recognition and reimbursement, and I do think the technology had to get to a point where people felt like it was very equivalent to in-person care and same standards and followed, and the technology gave us the tools to actually hear your breath sounds from across the world in real time. 
kind of that perfect storm of all coming together so that in the past year or two or three, you know, we flip over the back of our insurance card and we say, don't go to the ER, just mm. call Teladoc, you know, or whatever, if it's a low acuity thing. And so your insurance company loves it because mainstream. it saves them a ton of money as well. And our copays. <laughs> I, I had a kidney stone. I did not like my copay. If I could have reached through and done that at home, I would have. But yes. yeah, we, we are all sourcing. You know, since Obamacare, we are all having to be more responsible with our health care dollars, no matter where we stand on the coverage line. And this is just one tool in the Internet sourcing, whether it's direct to consumer or whether it's a specialist visit in an area that doesn't have that specialist. It's just changing how we source, find, access and pay for health care. But certainly these tools of telehealth, people often say to me, Oh, that's a specialty by itself. I'm a, it's not. It's just one tool that this kind of physician or provider uses. And as the years roll by, we all will become more and more comfortable with it. Well, and I was just going to say, I would, in addition, over the last three, last eight years and the last three years, the other thing that's happened is we're more accustomed to using the, this technology, similar technology, FaceTime and video chat and yeah. and, and video conferencing. We're more familiar in using it in all parts of our life. So you didn't have to train us to get comfortable with it. You were just there right. to to take advantage of something we were already being trained to be comfortable with. Yes, and consumer demand is definitely one of the main drivers um, right now for the increased adoption of telehealth. Uh, here's a good example. I had the flu while traveling in a hotel room. Telehealth is my business. I'm thinking... Uh, my insurance card on the back of the card has a number. Let me go on there. We we had an audiovisual visit from my hotel room while mm. I was on the road. The hotel sent somebody to pick up the prescription and bring mm. it. I was able to finish the conference, do my talk, take care of myself on the road. It doesn't get much faster or easier than that. Yeah, eating your own dog food as well. <laughs> Which is always a good thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I want to ask one last thing, since we're doing this on on WPO on Forbes Books Radio. It, it seems like what you're doing must be so celebrated within the world of the Women Presidents Organization, because this is all about helping, empowering, bringing greater health to women. Tell us about your involvement with WPO. Yes, so I joined WPO about seven years ago, very close to when I started this company, known the value of networking and um, with very smart, powerful women. An interesting thing about WPO, people also don't realize, is that these are women that own their own companies, not just manage or not are in the boardroom, but they are the owners themselves. And so they are very familiar with having to you know, be competent in all areas of the business because they're the leaders of their businesses. So not just for my specialty, certainly the WPO has gotten us featured. They are very passionate about this as well. They have gotten us featured not only with you today with Forbes, but also in the Wall Street Journal and um, been in many media channels trying to get the word out. And often these women are in the same situation themselves. I mean, they're young, they're pregnant, they have their careers and they get pregnant and they want the same resources. So my business has over doubled since I've been with WPO and we're set to double again, probably in the next 18 months. Mm. Some of that is being with a group of uber smart women 
that take a look at everything and do hold hands and kind of move through business together for sure. Um, but we are always passionate about each other's businesses and nothing is more dear to us than our families and our children. And so you're right. This is not just a job. It is a passion and hopefully my legacy. <laughs> well, I uh, I think you've picked a good one or it's picked you. I'm not sure which is which, but uh, right. uh, it is a, it's as a man, it's fascinating to hear you talk about women's telehealth. I mean, it's clearly men and can often be your customers as well because they're the fathers of the children. But it also yes. makes me think about all the ways that my health could benefit from the same kind of specialty, you know, men's telehealth. Uh, I was just getting a physical recently and, and, a, and a young doctor in training, a female was with my male doctor and he said, can she come in and, you know, be part of the examination? And I said, yes. And then we got to a certain part where I said, can she leave? <laughs> because yes. it was a men's health issue and I didn't, you know, I'm sure she could have handled it, but yeah. I wasn't sure I could handle it. And I could see how there's so many opportunities here and what you're doing is modeling for so many others in so many other fields. Absolutely. The technology in healthcare has always been just moving at rapid pace. But you, you bring up a good point, and I'd like to end on this point, and that is we chose our specialty because it's what we're good at, and we already knew it really well. So we're just trying to make it more available where the patient stands, right? So they get the right care at the right time in the right place. However, all of telehealth, all of telemedicine is entering our lives. It's entering our homes through Bluetooth devices. And it's moved from bulky, cart-based kind of peripherals to smartphones, flexible, stand in the street and talk to a doctor and take a picture of what happened on the curb. And mm. um, accessibility is just going to be unbelievable. And it will be for all of us. So not just my specialty of women's telehealth, it's for pediatrics, it's for men, it's for women. And every day that goes by, we are having new tools and learning more about how to use them to have quicker, better access, drive down our costs, get care when we need it at the right time at the right place. If you haven't experienced it, <laughs> you will be, Greg. <laughs> and, and I want to add just, you know, and, and one of the things that I think from a business perspective that's so exciting is a greater distribution of an asset called medical professionals, you know, literally Absolutely. enabling them. As you said, you have doctors who are seeing people in, I think you said six or eight clinics or hospitals, whereas if they were in one place, they'd be limited to the number of patients they could see and the number of patients that could see them would be limited. No, that's exactly right. So it's definitely extending our um, influence. Wow. She's Tanya Mack. She's the president of Women's Telehealth, womenstelehealth.com. She's also a member of the Women Presidents Organization. Thank you for being here and doing this interview with us because I know you are impacting all of our lives by what you're doing. I appreciate that. And thanks for making time for me today and helping us get the word out. Thanks for listening to the WPO on Forbes Books Radio. To find out more about the Women Presidents Organization, please go to womenpresidentsorg.com. To find out more about Forbes Books, go to forbesbooks.com.